So to start off, let me ask you a question. Uh, Do you have confidence that God will answer prayer? Now, it's kind of a trick question you might feel like because you can almost come up with two different answers. Almost like, Nate, give me a little bit more by what you mean when you ask, are you confident that God will answer prayer? Uh, You could run to a couple different scriptures. Let me just throw a few at you. On one hand, you might run to Jesus' words in John 14, where Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That sounds like a very confident building statement from Jesus. Or James 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And there's a statement, come to God in faith, asking him for wisdom, and God will give it to you. You should have confidence that God will answer your prayer. On the other hand, there are passages like James chapter 4. James 4, verses 3 and 4, you ask and do not receive. So he's talking about prayer here. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So here's a prayer that is being asked of God, being brought to God, and God is saying, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer. Furthermore, let's think about the Apostle Paul. Uh, One who walked with the Lord, one who did much for God in his church planting and in his work around the Mediterranean world, he came to God in prayer and asked him for help. But notice what happens in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. I came to him and I pleaded with him about this that it should leave me. And he's talking about the thorn in the flesh that came to him. And he's saying, I came to God and I asked that it would be removed. And God said, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer the way you want it to be answered. Sometimes I think that when we come to prayer, as Christians, we lack a confidence in prayer because of prayers like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. I came to God, I asked him, and look, there was the answer, no. And it's as though we're afraid to come to God with confidence because what if I come and I'm confident that he should and will answer the prayer, but then he doesn't? Does that set me up for disappointment and despair? Or if I come with this confidence in prayer that God will answer me, am I kind of like... Um, those people that go to the other church where they name it and claim it. And all I have to do is work up enough faith, and if I have enough faith, I can move God to answer my prayer, and he will give it to me. And we're like, no, 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 that doesn't, that's not biblical either. And so we're left with this question, should I have confidence that God will answer my prayers? Psalm 20 shows us that we should have confidence that God will act and that he will act for the glory of his name in delivering his people from sin. There are prayers 
where we should come to God and we should have all of the confidence in the world that God will deliver us from sin. He may not deliver us from the consequences of sin. He may not deliver us from the challenges of sin. But for God's glory and his sake, Psalm 20 would lead us to conclude that it is right for Christians to have this kind of confidence that when we come to God over sin that is going on in our lives, God is pleased to answer that kind of prayer. Now, a few things about Psalm 20 uh, before we move into it. First off, Psalm 20 is considered to be a royal psalm. A royal psalm is about God's chosen king who rules his chosen people. That's what a royal psalm is. Now, as I studied this psalm this week and went to different resources, what bothered me about the resources, many of the resources that I found or was interacting with this last week, is that most of the resources looked at Psalm 20 and said, because it's a royal psalm about God's chosen king, we should pray this for our leaders, our world leaders. And that left me kind of scratching my head because there's a lot of world leaders who don't fit Psalm 20. For example, look at verse 3. May he, the Lord, remember all our offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. This is showing devotion of the king to God. Are our world leaders showing this kind of devotion? Furthermore, verse 4. May he, the Lord, grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans there are a lot of world leaders where I do not want their desires and plans coming to fruition. Verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It seems to me as though Psalm 20 has applications that we might be able to apply for our president, our presidents, our world leaders, but it doesn't seem as though that's the direct connection for us this morning. It's a royal psalm about God's chosen king who rules his chosen people. So, let me give you another um, kind of piece of information to consider as we get into Psalm 20. Royal psalms need to be understood as being fulfilled or coming to fulfillment or completion in Christ and his kingdom's people. Royal Psalms need to be understood as being fulfilled or coming to completion in Christ and his kingdom, his kingdom's people. When you read Royal Psalms, folks, you need to know that this is probably taking place written in the lifetime of David with the king of Israel in mind, but you know that God gave David a very special promise in 2 Samuel 7 that from his line would come a king and that king would rule and reign forever. One scholar that I was helped by, um, he said this about Psalm 20. At stake is the royal glory. But more than that, God's glory is threatened. The prayer of intercession is for the king and therefore for the kingdom of God on earth. Now this is where I say that this is for us because... We are followers of Christ. We've been transferred and brought out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1. We are 
part of Christ's kingdom representing the glory of God here on earth. We are representatives of Christ here on earth. So if Psalm 20 finds its fulfillment and completion in Christ himself, there's going to be all kinds of splash over that applies to us as representatives of Christ himself here. The third piece of information that I want you to know as we move into this psalm this morning is that Psalm 21 is very closely connected to Psalm 20. Psalm 20, you might say, is preceding the event. Psalm 21 is what follows the event. Psalm 20 is the king going off to war, and here are the prayers for the king going off to war. But Psalm 21, look at verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. And so as we get into Psalm 21 next week, we can know that it's the victory march, if you will. It's the celebration of what God has done. Okay, so Psalm 20 is a prayer. It's a royal psalm. We're going to have the king of Israel in our eyes. Probably we need to know this like first and directly that this is the context of the psalm. We need to read royal psalms with the lineage of the kingship in mind. The lineage of the kingship is Christ who's coming, who fulfills that kingly, if you will, motif. And yet we don't stop with Christ because we see ourselves as citizens of Christ's kingdom representing Christ on earth. Psalm 20 is for us. We have the benefits of seeing ourselves in Psalm 20. So here is the big idea for the psalm that I want to give you this morning. We should pray with confidence that God will powerfully deliver people from sin for the glory of his name. We should pray with confidence that God will powerfully deliver people from sin for the glory of his name. So there's hope. If, if you're here this morning and you have been beat up, uh, you feel like the arms of sin are just wrapped around you. Um, perhaps it's been a season of despair in your Christian life. Perhaps there's something very specific that you've been wrestling with, even something physical like an addiction. Could be something mental, fears, anxieties, where you're like, I know that's not right. This psalm is a psalm that helps us pray with confidence that God will deliver us from that. All right, so we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the first couple of verses, just so you know. Three different appeals, or three different points to the sermon this morning. Uh, we're going to start with point number one. Pray with God's glory as your desire. Pray with God's glory as your desire. This is verses one through five. 
in verses 1 through 5, we see five different appeals coming through that ultimately lead to God's glory. Uh, Verse 1 says this, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. As you can see, this is a psalm that's being offered up on behalf of an individual. May the Lord answer you in your day of trouble. May the Lord, or may the name of God of Jacob protect you. At least ten times in these first five verses, you see that that approach where he's asking prayer for a certain individual. Who's the individual? The individual is the king. So picture a king sitting on his throne, perhaps David, or perhaps David wrote this when he was in fellowship with Saul, and Saul's going out to war. Picture a king sitting on his throne. He has to go out to war in 24 hours. He can see the the enemy out in front of him. That enemy is greater than him. If that king that's on his throne falls in war, if David falls in war, the whole kingdom of Israel falls with him and the glory of God through the nation fizzles out. However, if the king wins, the whole kingdom gets to share in the victory. Their good and God's glory is at stake here. In these psalms, there is oftentimes a prayer for the king because he's the representative of God here on earth, and we want God's glory to remain high. We want his glory to remain seen, so we're praying for the king. We're praying for victory on his behalf over his enemies. Now, this prayer is a prayer for the king that is dependent on God. I'm praying for you, and we're dependent on God. He has to intervene on behalf of the king because the enemy is greater. And so the prayer is, God, may you protect the vulnerable king who represents your glory here on earth. He is the representation of your glory here. And so he anchors the prayer to something very specific at the end of verse 1. Notice what he anchors the prayer to. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. We see this as a theme throughout the psalm. Look down at verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. And then verse 7, it comes up again. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. So God, we are praying for the king and we're praying that your name will reign, that your name will protect him, that we can glorify your name. What is the significance of that little phrase, your name? In the Old Testament, a name was chosen as a way of summarizing a person in one way or another. Think about Adam. God creates Adam. Adam is the kind of like the the pronunciation you might hear of somebody speaking in Hebrew. Simply means man. And God's like, okay, I'm going to give you a name that summarizes who you are and all of your character. Adam. Adam. There you are. You're a man. Eve. What is she? The source of living, the mother of all living. Along comes another man in the book of Genesis. We're going to call him Jacob. What's Jacob known for? What's his character? Little trickster? Little deceiver? Yep, that's who you are in your character. That's who you are. In Exodus, there is this little baby that is put in a basket in the Nile River, 
and he is drawn out of the waters, and God is going to use him to draw out the Jews out of Egypt. What's his name? Moshe, Moses, meaning drawn out. The name here represents who the person is. And so when this psalm is written, David is saying, may the name of the God of Jacob. And what did God do for Jacob? Well, there Jacob was being a trickster, a deceiver, and his deceit caught up to him. His troubles caught up to him. Esau, his brother, he deceived his, his brother. Esau came with his army, and he's going to take down Jacob. And in Genesis, God says that God delivered Jacob from Esau. He is a deliverer. That's who he is in his name. He is a deliverer. And as Israel sees God, they see him as the, people, as the person, the individual, the being, the God who delivered them over and over again from their enemies. Psalm chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who trust in everything of who God is, they trust his name, they can run to him. He won't forsake them. Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. There's glory connected to who God is because he delivers his people. He protects them from his enemies. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. What can the righteous man do? He can run into it and he is safe. This is who God is. And so the psalmist starts out here by saying, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. That's whom he's dependent on for being delivered from his enemies. Take your Bible. Maybe keep your... Your marker here in Psalm 20, go back to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. This is one of those pictures here where David has been sent. David is the youngest of these brothers. And his dad, Jesse, said, hey, take some food out to your brothers and take some cheese to the commander's. I thought that was just kind of an interesting thing reading through that narrative. Got to sweeten up to the commanders to make sure my sons are doing okay. So take this food out to them. And David, as a little shepherd boy, shows up at Soko, this region where Israel has um, planted their army. And where they are is also where the Philistines are. And so the Philistines have a champion warrior named Goliath. Goliath is a giant, a man whose just image and his, his presence is meant to be an intimidation. And so the Philistines put forth their giant warrior in the Valley of Elah. And Goliath's challenge is to the Jews, hey, you send your champion warrior out. And whoever wins takes the victory. It's an all or nothing kind of battle here that comes down to Two individuals. And so Goliath goes out and taunts the armies of Israel. Little shepherd boy David shows up. 
David's been out in the fields and he has defeated a lion. He's defeated a bear. He shows up and he sees this Philistine shooting off his mouth at his brothers and their army. And he's like, this can't be. We can't have God's glory dragged through the mud like this. So Saul's there and he convinces Saul to let him go into battle. We pick it up in verse 41. Here is David facing the Philistine champion. These two warriors now that are fighting each other. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. Why? This is all you've got, Israel? Just as little shepherd boy, he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Verse 44, Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. You can see where Goliath's strength comes from. He's going to do this. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you, and notice, here it is again. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And who is the name of the Lord of hosts? He is the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And now notice why. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So notice, David is coming in the name, in the confidence that God is who he is as a deliverer. And he's going to come and fight this battle. And what is the purpose at the end of verse 46? That the glory of God might be known. The name of God might be known. Verse 47, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear or horses and chariots, as we'll see in a little bit. For the battle is the Lord's. It's it's the Lord's battle here that's taking place. It's not my battle. This is God's battle between right and wrong, good and evil. And he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Game over. The battle is the Lord's here. David recognized that his protection from his enemy was sourced in God himself, not in his own strength. This protection was a gift from God to be received in faith. So David says in Psalm 20, some trust in horses and chariots, not us. When it comes to the battle, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in everything of who God is. We trust in his full character and we know that he's a deliverer. He's the name of the God of Jacob. So here we are, 
representatives of God here on earth, descendants, spiritual descendants of Christ, if you will. And here he is commissioning us into this world. And we have a battle to face. We have an enemy that we face. He's roaring. He's walking around seeking someone whom he may devour. And God is our spiritual protector. Christ, not only your Savior, but also a co-heir with you, a, a brother, if you will, alongside of you, can take Psalm 20 and say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that Satan might not sift you like wheat, Peter. I'm interceding on behalf of the people. And it's almost as though we could say, we're in Psalm 20. We're being prayed for by Christ himself. John 17, verse 15, Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's praying on our behalf right here. But that you keep them from the evil one. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, lead them not into temptation, but deliver them from evil. I think we all see sin in our lives. One of the things that we can be confident about is the Son of God is praying for his people. And the God of Jacob, the protector, the deliverer, is on the side of God's people. Since God is a deliverer, and when we see sin and we face sin in our lives, we can take these words from Psalm 20 and say, God, please be the God of Jacob. Please be a deliverer for me. Deliver us from sin for your glory. The psalm continues. We're going to move a little bit more quickly here. In verse 2, the psalmist says, May he send you help from the sanctuary. So he first asks for protection. Here he's asking for help. Jesus said in John 15, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. You're going to go forward, and you are going to have the Helper with you. In verse 3, <clears throat> there's a prayer for God's devotion. May he, that is God, remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt, your burnt sacrifices, Selah. Keep in mind, this was written within the context of the Old Covenant. The covenant that God had established with his people was this. I will be your God and you will be my people. And in this covenant, I will provide protection and provision for you and you will worship me in obedience. And so over and over again, God's people could look at this relationship and say, okay, God, we know our roles in the relationship. You've told us to come and worship you. You've come and told us to walk in obedience to you. And we get the benefit of your provision and protection. And so David could say, God, I've been devoted to you. I've played my role in the covenants. I've brought burnt offerings and sacrifices to you. I, I've done right, more or less. With the confidence that he is in a covenant relationship with God, that God would be his provider and his protector. We too know that we are in covenant relationship with God. He has made a promise that, as Pastor Darren prayed earlier, what he started in us will be completed. He's made promises that he will be with us to the end. 
He's made provisions for us with his word and with his spirit and even with his people so that when we face the enemy, when we face sin, we don't have to give in to it. In verse 4, there's a prayer for God's kindness. May he grant you your desires and fulfill all your plans. What was the king's desire? What did David want? He wanted to live. He wanted to make it through the war. He wanted God's glory to be known among the nation here. We know by now that God is not an ATM where we can just come up and punch in all of our little requests and he's just going to kick out a lot of currency for us, whatever we want. That's not the nature of what's going on here. David does not want evil to win because he desires to glorify God with his actions. And so we're starting to get to something very important here. This fifth nature here, this fifth appeal here, is a prayer for God's glory. And notice the pronoun shift that takes place in verse 5. It's all about you, 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 you. And now verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The congregation wants to be able to be joyful for David or whoever the king is for their deliverance from the enemy. They want to unfurl if you will, the flag of victory. They want to unfurl their banner and they want to raise it up so that it says, God did all of this. The battle was truly God's. We came to him with confidence. We prayed that we would be rescued and delivered from our enemy and God did it all. That's what they're shouting for in verse 5. And now this begins to shape the way that we pray. Do we pray in such a way that asks God to get the glory over the sin that is in our lives? So, for example, I'm not facing a geopolitical foe. I'm not a king sitting on a throne this morning. As you continue the storyline throughout Scripture, we have a spiritual enemy, sin, Satan. If I'm wrestling with the sin of bitterness towards someone because of what they did to me, I can pray a certain way. I can pray, God, please take away the bitterness in my life. But what is my goal in that prayer? Is my goal just to be free of that bitterness so that I'm more happy? Or can I have a Psalm 20 heart that prays for freedom from bitterness and sin for the reason of glorifying God, for the reason of lifting up his banner, saying, God, you got the victory over something in my heart that I couldn't do. I couldn't defeat it on my own. And so when we find ourselves struggling with sin on certain levels inwardly or even externally, and we find ourselves going back over and over again, there is a tendency where those consequences make us miserable. I hate the misery. I hate the consequences of our sin. And typically the prayer request goes something like this. God, please cut off the sin. I want my life to be happy. And the psalmist here would have us go one step further and say, you are missing something so much greater. You're missing 
God through all of this. You're missing his glory through all of this. You're missing this big picture that you need God's glory above your happiness. So God, will you please strike bitterness down in my heart and I want to unfurl the banner. I want the flag of God's victory to be waving over my life so we can see that it was you that did this. All right, so maybe pressing in a little bit further with more personal application. There was a season in my life where I struggled with unbelief. I struggled with assurance of salvation. And I think most people have been there at one point or another. And you wonder, God, please get me back to a place where I feel peaceful and happy and content. And over and over again, I'm just sharing with you what happened in my life, that unbelief or that struggle with unbelief persisted over and over. I don't know when it was, but just reading through scripture over and over again, I thought, came to the realization, I'm, I'm not coming as far as God wants me to. In so many words, I could see that I was praying selfishly. I was praying for my end, and that was it. And God started showing me, this is not about you and then one and done. This is about my glory in and through your life. Will you pray that you would have assurance of your salvation and that God would be glorified in and through it? And when my prayers started happening that way, asking for him to defeat the sin of unbelief so that his glory might be established, so that his glory, he might get the glory, God began removing that unbelief in my heart. I want to encourage you this way. As you think about the various sins and the enemies that you face in life, take your prayers one step further, take them beyond yourself, and let them rest on God. Your prayers are like arrows, sending them out to God. God, I have this problem that's going on in my life. I have this sin, this challenge that's going on in my life. But every arrow has a target, doesn't it? Your arrows need to be shooting for the glory of God in your life. Your prayers need to be about the glory of God. God, right now in this moment, please give me victory over this sin. For your honor and your glory, I want you to be the one that's magnified in my life. I know I'm nothing. You need to be the one who's honored and glorified in my life. You might be praying for others that way. You might have a spouse who is indifferent to the Lord. As we read the psalm, the way to pray for your spouse wouldn't be, God, I'm hurting. Please fix my spouse. Please help me. Although there might not be anything wrong with that, it's incomplete. We have to move into verse 5 again. The way to pray for an indifferent spouse would be, God, I'm hurting. Please do something radical in my spouse's life in such a way that shows you as victorious. In such a way that we say, God, you are the one who did all of that work. You are the one who fights the battle for us. The victory belongs to you. For a parent, God, I'm hurting because my children are wayward. God, please direct them back to the truth. Good prayer. 
But can we go one step further and move into verse 5? God, I'm hurting because my children are wayward. Please direct them back to the truth. Only you can reach their hearts. I want to wave the banner of your victory in my heart and shout for joy of your saving, powerful, life-changing grace that could only come from you, God. God, we want to praise you for the work you are doing. These psalms here are psalms that are to be prayed in confidence. So the confidence that we have here is actually anchored in who God is. It's about God's glory being on display. Psalm 145, verses 10 through 12 says this, All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. That's what we want to declare. That's what we want to be about. God, it's all about you. Aim the arrows of your prayer for the glory of God. Second, pray with confidence in God. Pray with confidence in God. We see this in verses 6 through 8 now. This is what we've been referring to periodically throughout the sermon. Verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. The anointed is the king. The anointed is the Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And this anointed eventually finds its fulfillment in whom? Christ. Christos, that's the Greek translation for this name. Jesus said, I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we know that the Christ, the anointed, he is not going to be defeated. He is going to win. And we saw this back in Psalm 16, verse 10. Where someone said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter applied that to Christ in Acts chapter 2. Here's what I want you just to see from this. We can be confident because God's king will reign. God's king, his anointed, will reign. We see this throughout scripture. And we see it at the very end where Jesus comes back, Revelation 19, And he has a name that's written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will reign. And the question is, is there a connection between the king who reigns and us? And yes, there is. Look at verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. They trust in their kings. They trust in their military. They trust in their own personal might. But we don't go there. We trust in the anointed. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall. Those who trust in horses and chariots. But what happens for those who trust in the name of the Lord our God? We stand. We rise and stand upright. Why? Because the king has won the victory and he gives the spoils of his victory to his people. So as David goes out and wins the war, Israel comes in and says, yes, what an enjoyment that we get to share in the bounty of this victory. And here's Christ who goes forward and defeats sin and death and says, now I've given you victory. I've given you the bounty of victory to be enjoyed. We share in Christ's victory. When it comes to this victory over sin, 
we still have this time where Christ has said, now follow me. We live in the everyday life. The victory has been won through Christ at the resurrection on our behalf. And yet he says, now go forward as victors. Go forward as those who can witness to my victory. We can have so many helpful tools. We have other Christians cheering us on. We have the spiritual disciplines of reading our Bible and praying. But what is our confidence anchored to when we go out and fight sin? What are we trusting to deliver us? We trust in who God is. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, the protector of Jacob, the one who delivers. We trust in who Christ is. He's not going to send us out to lose. He's going to send us out to be representatives of him in Christ's glory. And so this just keeps coming back to me over and over again that as you're facing the battle over and over again each week, you can say, Lord, there are so many things that you've given to me, but I need to trust in you to lead me through this battle. I need to trust in you to lead me through sin. I think we have to be careful. There are so many good things that we do have, like I mentioned earlier. We've got God's word. He's given it to us. We have God's people. We gather together for encouragement and point one another towards Christ. We have spiritual disciplines, you know, that he gives to us. All of those are meant to point us to God himself. And so we trust in God. Put it a little bit differently. David had to go out to war. He had horses and chariots where he had to go out to war. He used those in war. But ultimately, the victory was a victory that came from God himself. And so whatever it is that you're wrestling with as you face another week, as you face the enemy, you can be confident that it's God who is going to give you the victory. Pray to him for victory over sin. Pray to him as Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 9. Verse 9, just finally and quickly. Is it all said and done? No. The attitude is that we pray continually with confidence. Verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Again, Psalm 21 is the answer to that prayer. There's rejoicing because of what God did. Do we know when God is going to answer the prayer? We don't. That's why we need to keep continually praying. David was confident that God would act. We can be confident that God will act in accord with his covenant with us. The spirit of God is at work in us. Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But as you go into this week, I just think about this. Okay, here is Christ, the fulfillment of Psalm 20. He was sinless. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And here we are now with the splashes of his victory on our lives. I think here is Psalm 20 saying, we can pray with confidence that sin will not have a stranglehold on us. And so I want to encourage you this week, when you're faced with that sin to think, God, I want to pray for your glory to be on display as I walk in obedience to you. It would be good for you to write that sin down that you're wrestling through or 
fighting against, that challenge that you're fighting against, and saying, God, I trust in the name of the Lord our God. I don't have to sin right now because that's in front of me. I can walk in obedience because of who you are. Yours is the victory. When we walk away from Psalm 20, be encouraged of who God is. We trust in the name of the Lord our God to bring us through each enemy that we face, each bout that we face with sin. Let's pray.